The family that I come from has its uh, traces, its history back to the Mughal Empire. So we were the bookkeepers uh, for the Mughal emperors. And so we, so we always got to eat, you know, very um, the same uh, from the same kitchen that they would. And so a lot of our uh, traditional dishes are very rich in spices and are mostly mutton based. Hello and welcome back to My Signature Dish. My name's Ollie Horn. It's a pleasure to have you here. This is the podcast where I speak to the most talented home cooks that I can find, talk to them about their love of food, and get them to spill all about their signature dish. In this episode, I'm speaking to Vandana. Vandana's originally from Delhi in North India. Uh, she now lives in Singapore, uh, and she's going to tell me all about her delicious buna gosht. I think I pronounced that correctly, uh, which is a lamb curry. Uh, I'm afraid that's two lamb dishes in a row, so I'm sorry to uh, my vegetarian listeners. But do keep listening, because this is a very special episode for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is this is a collaboration episode. Uh, that is to say that Thought for Food, which is the world's next generation innovation engine for food and agriculture, they've partnered with this podcast uh, and so there might be some people listening to this episode which are not subscribers of my signature dish or i should say not yet subscribers of my signature dish uh, but rather are listening to the thought for food podcast so if you're one of those people uh, thanks very much i hope you stick around till the end uh, and at the end of the episode i'm going to tell you a little bit more uh, about thought for food uh, their global challenge that they have uh, and the tff summit uh, which i hope to be participating in later this year and i understand vandana might be attending too uh, so this episode's different for that reason, but it's also different because we don't actually spend that long talking about uh, her food. Uh, we spend most of the time talking about her role at the Grow Agri-Food Tech Accelerator. Vandana invests money in new food startups, and so we talk about that. We talk about uh, things like aquaculture, which is a word I'd never heard of before. Uh, we talk about uh, lab-grown meat. Uh, we talk about how venture capital is influencing food innovation. Uh, loads of really, really interesting stuff in here so if you're someone that has an idea for a food-based startup uh, I really recommend you listen to this episode there's lots of really really good advice for budding entrepreneurs so this episode starts with us talking about exactly that what is it that Vandana is looking for in a food tech startup and how she sees the world of innovation as it relates to food enjoy I'm very keen to know what's happening in the food tech space. I've always had an interest, but now in my, you know, role at Grow, this is an area of focus as well in terms of uh, identifying new food technologies, understanding what the trends are. Everyone's asking the question, where's my food coming from? Who's been touching it? What's been added to it? So a lot of interest around that is what has brought me here. Good. And for those that don't know what Grow is, Grow is essentially a, a venture capital so, firm. Uh, so Grow is actually a global food and agri-tech accelerator program that's been set up in Singapore. We launched in September. We are backed by AgFunder, which is one of the largest venture capital funds in uh, the ag-tech space, and in partnership with Rocket Cedar, which is a food tech accelerator out of Australia. Right, so there's a lot of words there that some people <laughs> might not have understood. Uh, to put it simply, your role is you invest money in promising food tech businesses food tech and agri-tech businesses with the aim of bringing them into singapore and the region 
Understood. And so are these businesses ones that have just got off the ground or ones which are already established? So both early stage startups and later stage scale-ups. The idea behind this is to help in the food security program of Singapore. So we've set a very ambitious target for ourselves in Singapore, which is called the 30 by 30, which means that 30% of the nutrition consumption that happens in Singapore must be locally produced by 2030. And what's the impetus for this? So currently we're importing 90% of our food. And uh, in 2018, there was some scare about not getting enough in, which is what's got Singapore government thinking very seriously about their food security program and upping it from the current 10% to the 30% in the next 10 years. Singapore's quite a small country, isn't it? And its climate presumably presents some unique challenges. What are those and is venture capital money enough to solve them? So Singapore is land scarce, agreed, but uh, we're trying to be the science and technology innovation hub to bring in more new technologies. So focus areas are aquaculture, urban farming, alternate proteins, digital supply chain and food waste. None of this requires, you know, too much land. Right. Can you explain what aquaculture is? So aquaculture is bringing in technology to um, increase production of, you know, uh, seafood, right, in a more sustainable way. So faster and better and in a more sustainable way. Same thing with urban farming. We're trying to, so food is soon going to be, or, you know, agriculture is soon going to be like manufacturing, you know, in controlled environments under certain, you know, well-monitored conditions. Digital supply chains, because that's going to impact everything that comes in and out of Singapore. And food waste, definitely. And you mentioned that you run an accelerator program. So does that mean that you have startups which are, maybe they have expertise in a tangential field, but they want to bring that technology to agriculture or to food? Or or is this startups which maybe already have the experience in food, but don't know how to use technology to leverage it? I guess it would be bits of both. So, uh, you know, technology that has use cases in agriculture which have not been tested or are likely to have positive uh, impacts in the region. And of course, startups that are already in the agri-tech and food tech space, which want to move into Singapore and, you know, access the greater Southeast Asia market from there. We have a very, very interesting and a very diverse cohort, uh, which has started with us in September. We have a cellular agriculture company from uh, Canada, which is doing lab-grown chicken. Uh, We have a digital marketplace from India, which is doing farm equipment and, uh, you know, tractors. Uh, We have a very, very interesting startup from Singapore, which is doing uh, strawberries. Okay. And what's the twist? So growing strawberries in tropical and desert climates. So you have 365 days sweetness guaranteed strawberries in Singapore very soon. Excellent. Nice. Do you think that the products that we ultimately end up consuming are affected by the flow of, of venture capital? That's a tough one to answer. But uh, to be fair, I think um, from, the, from a VC's point of view, we're looking at investing in startups that are scalable. We're also looking at sustainability. Uh, we're also looking at food safety. So if you package it all together, I think the money is going in the right direction. And this money, does that come from kind of general institutional investors or people that are looking to invest in something which uh, has some kind of wider purpose? We've launched two funds to support uh, the Grow Accelerator program. One is uh, called the New Carnivore, which is for alternate protein 
startup funding, and the other is the Grow Asia Fund, through which we want to invest in the startups that come through the Grow, uh, the Grow Accelerator program. And what's your check size? Uh, we do seed pre-series A funding. Uh, we have a demo day coming up in March, and that's when we'd know how good you know, the startups uh, that have come through the program have been. And how does being a, a, a VC in agriculture and food differ from, say, being a VC in, I don't know, blockchain or a VC in consumer? I think the life cycle is much longer here. So instead of looking at about a three to five years, we're looking at a eight to ten years um, when we invest. Right. OK. And what does that mean in practical terms? So maybe um, you need to be invested in for a much longer time to be able to see returns in the ag and food tech space. And do your GPs know this? Of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, so, and so presumably they, they are investing uh, with some kind of wider social purpose in mind, right? If they're not going to be getting their returns as quickly as other asset classes. So ideally the situation should be uh, to have a double bottom, you know, so a commercial uh, impact as well as a social impact. Right. And could you maybe uh, talk a little bit more about your personal investment thesis? What is it that gets you excited when you see a company? I think for me, it's about uh, novel and new ingredients. It's also about uh, sustainability. So that's something that I'm very passionate about, about you know, how we can uh, do it right. right. There's a lot of stuff that's, uh, a lot of food that's uh, coming in which has written on macro trends so far, uh, but a lot of us are now asking very serious questions about uh, you know, eating healthily. So that's something that I'm concerned about and looking at how, you know, what's going in and how can we make it safer, more nutritious and healthier, of course. And what does sustainability mean to you in this context? Uh, for me, sustainability is more about you know, um, no wastage in that, uh, you know, s- value chain. So uh, if there is something that we can do to reduce waste during production, uh, during, uh, you know, transportation, that's something that we are very closely looking at. So um, food safety and uh, quality testing at various stages of the journey of food from the farm to the consumer, that's a key focus area. And based on your experience, do you think the way that we currently consume food, or rather currently consume the food that's being produced as it is now, is that going to be the same in 20 years' time, or are we going to see a a radical change? A radical change is probably putting it lightly. Uh, There is going to be a lot of change in terms of how we eat, um, how much we eat, and um, where it's coming from. What are the practices that we do now that in 30 years' time we're going to look back and go, what on earth were we doing there? I think it's it's got to do a lot with... uh, animal farming. I think that's that's something that's uh, a concern for everyone now on, you know, how humanely are we doing it? Um, the amount of non-vegetarian food that we are consuming and its impact on, you know, the health. So that's something that's going to be changing drastically uh, with alternate protein, plants, plant-based foods, a lot more options coming up. Food is a very personal thing, isn't it? what we put in our mouth is necessarily something quite intimate, something based on personal preference. Making changes in in customer behavior is really, really difficult, isn't it? And so do you think that there's a kind of a chicken and egg problem, that consumers need to be wanting and willing to change their practices, 
but unless there are products which are going to incentivize them mm. to do so, they won't. And on the other hand, it's very hard to know what to plow your money into if you're not sure that there's going to be enough consumers that are going to try it. That's the challenge that we are facing with some of our startups who have really interesting products. But um, there is a certain time before they can bring it to market. There is also perception around new foods. Um, Asia has always been a little more traditional in their food habits. Um, the West has accepted um, a lot more, a lot faster. So that's the challenge that we are going to face when we bring in uh, new and uh, novel ingredients. It is, of course, uh, you know, at the end of the day, your personal choice. But there is also a lot more awareness, a lot more education around, you know, what's good, what's not good, what we must be eating more of. And I'm sure that's going to impact how we make our decisions in our daily eating habits also. And do you think that there is a role for the state in this? Definitely, definitely. Um, I can uh, say that in Singapore, a lot of new initiatives are being, uh, you know, um, taken for uh, not just creating awareness, but also in terms of, you know, bringing in a better uh, quality of uh, food produce. And can you think of any examples that have happened in the past where a food or an agriculture idea that was seen as novel and would never catch on is now commonplace? Cellular agriculture. Who would have thought of lab-grown meat? Uh, we have um, a startup in Singapore which is doing uh, lab-grown shrimp. Right? So these are completely um, new ideas which probably um, we weren't even thinking about a couple of years back or we probably didn't think that we would ever be eating. I'm still a little... Um, skeptical about it but that's just my personal opinion sure but, but but i think something will tip you over the edge right and that might be something as simple as a nudge right that you go to your supermarket and suddenly normal shrimp aren't there anymore but these lab-grown shrimp are or, or suddenly normal yeah. shrimp are 10 times the price yeah. or if i eat it without knowing that i'm not eating the original one right okay fair <laughs> yeah. enough so i mean the same thing goes with um, insect protein yep right um i've not been able to put the full grasshopper in, but maybe crushed, powdered, yeah, flavored right. chips, that's completely acceptable. So presumably you don't become uh, a food VC without being a massive foodie. Uh, it always helps to be a foodie. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you enjoy eating? Well, I've been um, pretty much a hardcore ve non-vegetarian, if you could say yeah. that. I've noticed uh, my own tastes and preferences changing off late. That's fascinating. And why do you think that is? Uh, I think it's more because um, of all the awareness, of all the information that's coming through about, you know, how our farm animals are being, uh, you know, treated and how the food is actually reaching us. So in terms of... Um, Changing habits, yes, it's happening with me. And I'm noticing that uh, I'm also shifting to what I would like to call a flexitarian diet. You know, I mean, I do enjoy my uh, chicken and my meat, but I started to enjoy my vegetables as much. And do you think this has happened because there is this ethical case, right? There's more awareness and you've started to be introspective about that. Or do you think also just the fact that there are great vegetarian alternatives which weren't available before? So, yes, um, you know, the ethics around um, animal farming, also the amount of, um, you know, the greenhouse gases that we are now talking about 
And of course, lots more option in terms of um, plant-based protein available. Living in Singapore, there is an absolute embarrassment of riches when it comes to <laughs> delicious food. Do you go to the hawker centers? Yes, I do. Uh, a lot. Um, and I think it's very convenient to have them around. Um, as a working uh, parent, I think sometimes it's really convenient for the family to just meet at a pre-decided um, hawker center. Everyone gets to eat their choice. Right. And, you know, the, you the, come back to a clean kitchen. There will be some listeners that don't know what a hawker center is. <laughs> Would you mind describing it for them? So hawker center is something that's a very popular uh, concept um, in Singapore. And you have um, cheap as in about 2 to $5 meals available. Lots of different uh, cuisines, so you could get uh, in one place, uh, you know, local Chinese, Malay, Thai, Vietnamese, Indian, even Western food. And um, everyone just gets to pick and choose whatever they want to eat that evening. Right. And as a mother, I've had this challenge a lot of times of putting food on the table that satisfies everyone right. in the house. So uh, it's so a welcome break. The layout of these places is there's kind of a central kind of communal eating area, area, right, which is not owned by any particular restaurant. And then all around the outside are lots of small restaurants with maybe just one or two members of staff, yep. maybe just serving one or two dishes. Please. And you can just go and grab whatever you want yeah. and, and kind of bring it to the table yep. together. And then someone comes and clears your plates for you. Yes, that's the way it works. I don't know why this concept doesn't exist elsewhere. Because the, the idea of a food court kind of exists, right? But what's really good about the Singapore Hawker Centers is they're they hyper-specialized, right? They all do one product super well. Right. And that's why I think Singapore might be the only country where these little market stalls get Michelin stars. Because, mm. you know, you'll get a yes, chicken rice guy. Yeah. It's super, super well <laughs> refined. I, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely, I, I love it there. The problem is, you know, you want to eat everything, right? <laughs> you're, you're walking around, you want, to, you want to try the whole thing. Yeah. Do you think that um, food centers like this will still exist in 100 years? Uh, yes, but maybe serving very different kind of food. What do you think it will look like? Uh, they'd probably be more digital. Uh, they'd uh, probably have, you know, maybe uh, robots serving you instead of the lean teams that exist. Yeah. But I'm sure the concept will still be around. And th this is something that I often think about food, that food isn't just about the nutrients and what we put inside us, right? There's su such a deep cultural yeah. connection to food. And this must be something as, as a VC as well that you think about, right? That it's not simple enough to say this will provide you with the nutrients because people's association with food is so deeply cultural. And presumably this is something that's quite hot in Singapore too because Singapore is a melting pot of lots of different cultures. Do you have any insights as an outsider that's <laughs> moved into Singapore about how one's culture affects the way one thinks about food? Uh, yes, um I think growing up, um, I've, had, um, I've had the opportunity to l grow up in India, but live in about, I think, 12 or 14 different locations before I moved and settled in Delhi. So every time we went to a different place, it was a different cuisine, a different, uh, you know, some, some differences in culture. And it shapes a lot of the way you think about food. Uh, some, and that's, that's kind of what I brought when I came to Singapore. And uh, there is a lot of variety. There is a lot of culture. And it, I think it brings a lot of people together as well. So when I came into Singapore and I, you know, my first few um, eat, eating um, sessions at food courts, I didn't know a lot of the other cuisines that were available. And I got to talk to people who explained that to me. And it kind of creates a little nice community around food there. Presumably within India too, there's a huge amount of regional diversity. 
Uh, on a previous podcast episode, uh, we spoke extensively about the difference between North and South mm-hmm. uh, Indian cuisine. Um, the fact that you've moved around all different parts of India, has that shaped how you think about food? Definitely, yes. Um, a lot of uh, food that... So I'm from North of India. I belong to Delhi and... Uh, we eat a whole lot of different spices. We cook our food in a very different style than, you know, maybe south of India, if I could generalize it like that. But within that, they have, you know, very different states and different, uh, you know, food uh, styles, if you could say that. So, yes, India offers a host of different, um, you know, cuisines within one country itself. Something that I've, I've been pondering myself is certainly as I've traveled around the world more, I see similarities in uh, in cooking preparation styles and in uh, flavor profiles based largely on kind of geographical similarities between different countries. So somewhere like India, for example, I've never been, but massive great big country, mm. I can totally presume that food that's cooked near the coast is totally different to food that's cooked uh, in the center of the country mm. or, uh, you know, foods uh, that's cooked in an area which has a certain type of climate, mm. might have a certain type of vegetable which wouldn't be available. And so that's basically what affects uh, the food that's ultimately produced, right? Mm. You know, the reason why, I don't know, Japanese... Um, foods were so salty historically was because they had very, very poor preservation, right? I wonder, as the food, the global food supply chain gets more sophisticated, there could be a future where we have kind of like just-in-time delivery for a single garlic mm. clove anywhere in the world. I wonder if these kind of regional differences will slowly dissipate. Yeah. They're already disappearing. So uh, traditionally, you would only eat vegetables that grew in that season. But if you take Singapore, I could probably get any vegetable across the year, right? So it's already changing the way I'm cooking. And um, it definitely will then, you know, merge a lot of different cultures, cuisines into one because you could, uh, there's really no differentiation in your cooking because you're limited by what's being, you know, what's available or or in season at that stage. You could possibly be cooking, uh, you know, a winter vegetable in um, summer because it's now available 30, you know, 365 days of the year. So do you think... I suppose I want to use the word authenticity. Do you think authenticity is something mm. that we need to fight to preserve in food? Yes. A lot of um, quick fixes are now available. Um, you do, you know, traditionally for us, curry has always been something that uh, took a lot of investment in time, in preparation. And to see that it's available in like a powder form, it just doesn't, doesn't cut with me. So I would still do it the authentic way, even though it does take a little bit more time and effort from me. But that's just because I want to still be able to eat the original tasting stuff. And so the authentic way is what? Taking kind of fresh spices, grind, toasting Grinding them yourself. Grinding fresh spices, you know, buying your vegetables fresh, um, making the curry from scratch. We talked about <laughs> having a blind taste test for shrimp, right? I wonder if there is a curry powder manufacturer that can absolutely get your homemade recipe spot on. The only difference might just be that it's you that's put the effort in. And that's really what people that eat your food value. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I I do wonder, right, eventually we're going to be able to create packets where all of our nutrition that we need is just there, right? And and that's probably an inevitability. So then we need to kind of think about what is it that we actually value when someone cooks for us? And it's probably not the food or the nutrients, is it? I think it's uh, there's more to just the food, right? So there's this whole um, effort of making something special for someone that also possibly adds a lot of flavor to it, right? So um, I've always enjoyed cooking. Uh, 
I've um, tried as much as I can to make most of my meals at home. I do have cheat days when we go to a hawker center, but typically at home we would do most of our cooking, you know, from scratch. And although we've had a lot of, you know, exposure to different cuisines, we do eat a lot of Indian, but supplementing it with a lot of other, uh, you know, foods that the children enjoy or probably we've tasted when we've traveled. So did you grow up learning how to cook Indian food? Uh, much to my mother's disappointment, no. She's been a culinary art teacher for almost 30 years. Oh, wow, okay. And uh, she used to run uh, cooking classes at home and I had uh, about 20 to 30, um, you know, women coming in to attend her classes. And in I the would home. never In the house. And I would never, ever be around. Because that... <laughs> what a waste. I mean, I, would, I, I always got to eat all the stuff that they cooked. So right. I was happy with just that. And so what was the tipping point? What changed? I think it was the fact that um, once I was living on my own and I started to miss home-cooked food, that's when I went into the kitchen to start cooking. And um, I was calling her every, almost every day to ask her, you know, how she did it and what went into her special dishes. And so now I have a little recipe book of my own but which is most of you know dishes from my mom's side my aunts everyone that I appreciated uh, you know their cooking and I've now got a little bit of my own uh, book going. Great and have you uh, progressed beyond just Indian food now? Oh yes lots so um, uh, I've always been exposed to various different cuisines even when I was growing up right so uh, a lot of Indian um, a lot of it is also more convenience cooking so you know one pot dishes that's a big favorite but I get the sense that it takes forever Indian food it does it does so you have to have a couple of shortcuts up your sleeve right so you could probably prep some bit of your curries and your sauces and keep them ready for whenever you feel like indulging in Indian food great give me some Indian food hacks please Okay, so I do a little um, masala preparation. So that's my onion uh, and uh, fried onions and curry. Um, uh, The curry that I make using fried onions, that's tomatoes, a lot of our spices. I uh, cook it and I store it in the fridge for about, you know, it lasts me for about two to three uh, curry dishes. And it's quick because the, uh, the masala preparation takes a good about 45 minutes. But if you have it ready, then you can do anything in, the ne- in 20 to 30 minutes. Is this the kind of thing that you could freeze as well? You do. I do. I'd make little, uh, you know, packets of it and put it in the freezer. Great. Okay, yeah. good hack. Any more? Um, yes, a tomato puree that's always available. I do uh, grind my own uh, ginger and garlic paste. Okay. So, uh, is that really better? Is it, is it actually better than what you can buy in a shop? Yes, I would say so, because it's fresh and the flavors in fresh are very different from something that's been processed and packed for a while. Actually, I do think that's true for garlic, actually, specifically garlic, because like the, the flavor profile changes almost from the moment that you slice it in slice half, doesn't it? Yes. Interesting. What's the dish that your mum used to cook for you, but, but you still haven't mastered? There must be one. Oh, yes, there is. It's um, It has a, a very um, strong, you know emotional connect uh, she used to make this dish called the kofte okay it's a mutton kofta so something like a meatball yeah kofta is a turkish word isn't it uh, it has its origin in the mughal uh, empire 
Right. So it, okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, the family that I come from has its uh, traces its history back to the Mughal Empire. So we were the bookkeepers uh, for the Mughal emperors. This and is so fascinating. We, so we always got to eat, you know, very um, the same uh, or from the same kitchen that they would. And so a lot of our um, traditional dishes are very rich in spices and are mostly mutton based. And the style of cooking is slow with a lot of spices. You've had a very, very busy career, right? You're, you're, you had a startup, which was extremely successful. Uh, an event startup, is that right? Yes. So I started in Singapore in 2012, 2013, when there was almost no startup ecosystem around. You had to muddle your way through to, you know, get to the VCs. Uh, it was tough because it was still a very much a boys club at that time. And I think it probably still is. Uh, it's changing slightly, but um, I also had a couple of challenges. I was a female founder. I was a solo founder, you know, so a wow. lot of things that... Those boxes. are red lines for... Yep, so a lot of boxes that didn't get ticked. So I had a big challenge in scaling that. Plus um, an immigrant as well. Did, did that affect your experience? No, not really. I think Singapore is very cosmopolitan, very um, accepting of, you know, everyone that wants to or has something uh, to offer. That's very so good I didn't face any challenges there, but uh, it took a while for me to get to that point where, uh, you know, I would have if I had some support in... Um, gotten in about three years. It took me about five years. I had a successful exit in 2017. And that's when I was also meeting a lot of VCs and ended up, you know, working with one. Right. And well, and it was during that time when we were, you know, assessing startups from all over to, and we were doing seed investment at that stage, that a lot of interesting food tech and agri-tech startups, um, you know, that I met and interacted with and that sort of piqued my interest in moving to a very niche program and grow set up in September 2019 so it was just perfect for me to move and uh, look at how we can work best. And presumably while you're in the growth stage of your startup you weren't cooking that much you probably wouldn't have had the time. Thankfully I was in an event space so I was able to you know try experimenting uh, with providing um, F&B services through the uh, digital marketplace. Unfortunately for me, there were some, um, you know, regulations that uh, I had to struggle with. Oh, tell us about these. <laughs> you don't want to. That's fine. Um, um, okay, that's. Uh, yeah. So I moved from, you know, I when I started off, it was more about, um, you know, baking. Yeah. So a lot of uh, party snacks, party food is what I was doing. And then eventually it moved into a completely different uh, digital marketplace. We were doing about 40 to 50 events a month. I had over about 1,500 vendors listed on the platform. Wow, quite the pivot from Ab baking cupcakes to absolutely. <laughs> providing absolutely. a marketplace. Yeah. So I call myself an accidental entrepreneur. I never intended to make a business out of it, but uh, I guess it was designed I think, a, I think a lot of startups start, start mm. this way. My first startup, the one which I exited from last year, did not start with an ambition of building a company. Mm. And it kind of happens by accident, doesn't it? All of a sudden you're like, oh, I've got to fill out a tax yeah. return for yeah. a business. I didn't yeah. know. Oh, I've got to employ someone. But, it kind of happens step by step, doesn't it? And it kind of catches up. It does. And for me, um, it was very interesting because... Um, I had been doing a lot of events and, you know, I was sharing information on 
who's a good caricature artist who should you get for, you know for um, face painting and you know who does balloons till one of the vendors that i had been referring my friends to sent me a check in the mail and that's when the light bulb went brilliant went, right saying so instant one, validation absolutely so if one vendor could do that why wouldn't the others right so, and that's when i actually moved from being an excel sheet into a digital marketplace that's a great origin mm. story and so did you call them up and you're like mm, why did you just send me a check i yes i did i thought that you know they they were probably wanting to send a payment to one of the referees references that i'd given them and it had accidentally come to me and that 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 was like you know a big high point for me to know that someone out there had actually uh, understood the value of what i was doing and from there it was boom great yes, yeah. so could you distill this bit of experience into some advice for people who are listening to this that might be thinking of starting their own startup or maybe waiting for one of these moments i would say don't wait you know i mean just go and do it there's someone somewhere who's going to be able to validate uh, your idea and you never know who that is so don't wait for things to happen for you just go out build and it'll it'll you know the results will start to show great so i'd like to talk about cooking a bit more uh, because I'm a huge fan of Indian food, but my only exposure to Indian food has been Indian food outside of India. Mm. Uh, obviously, particularly in the UK, where there are dozens of curry houses in every town, um, no doubt modified for the British palate. Right. Uh, but it is it is fascinating that when I think about my hometown, there are more Indian restaurants than there are British pubs, right? With a relatively Possible. small Indian population. Uh, so you've you've presumably enjoyed Indian food all around the world. How how does it differ when you're enjoying think, Indian food outside? Uh, yes, so um, one is the vegetables taste different in every location, right? So that that kind of takes a bit away from what an original Indian dish would taste like. Also, the flavors of the spices and the way we blend it, the way we marinate our food, there's a lot of difference. So although the food tastes similar. what you would probably get in india is something very different from what you would have eaten in uk right and and this dish which you mentioned earlier this this was it slow cooked with a lot of spices and it was uh, mutton did you it say it is mutton mutton i'll be honest here i don't like right but i wonder whether i've only ever had bad mutton so um you know there is a difference here so mutton for outsiders is lamb mutton oh. for us is goat right and there is a huge flavor difference there so i'm not a fan of lamb but i would i really enjoy the goat meat interesting because i actually like i quite like for example a a shoulder of lamb like mm. i actually don't mind that gamey flavor mm. maybe it's a texture thing that i'm not sure i like with mutton but i suppose you with your recipe in fact let's let's do a deep dive tell me about this recipe i'm presuming this is your signature dish it is my signature dish and it's called buna gosht which buna literally means uh, slow roasted okay already yeah. i'm a fan <laughs> and it's a very simple one pot dish can you say the name again buna gosht that's b h u n a And then what was the second word? Gosht. Gosht is literally the Indian translation for mutton. Oh, okay. Yeah. So slow roasted yeah. lamb, yeah. slow roasted goat. Yeah. But um it's um it traditionally used to be made in uh, you know the tandoors. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, but obviously the, at the, home we do it um you know in a pressure cooker for right. lack of time. Excuse me, but I thought a tandoor was like a really really hot oven. 
It is. Isn't that what you kind of cook a naan bread in in a minute? It it does. So what you do is you actually uh, put the dish on the coal, yeah, and let it simmer. Right. So it's kind of like a slow cooker. Then. Cooking, yeah. So it's not on fire, but yeah. it's on the coal. So it cooks from the heat of the coal. Interesting. And what does the finished dish look like? Is it like a like a curry? It is a curry, but um, it has a lot of flavor. It it is very rich, and um, easy to cook yeah right uh, so you just put, uh, get you mar- you don't need to marinate the meat which is a big difference from most of our other dishes uh, it takes a lot of onion tomato ginger garlic a couple of you know our whole spices yeah and it all goes into a pot together and slow cooks so the mutton cooks in its own juice you don't add any water to it so the juice from the onions and the mutton is what you know cooks the dish and do you add any like creams or anything at the end? No, you don't. Ah. No, you don't. It is obviously cooked in a little bit of ghee, which is yeah. the clarified butter. And uh, that also lends a very unique flavor to it, but no cream. So h- how would you describe this flavor? It sounds like, so, so it's not going to be like a, like a butter chicken flavor. It seems no. a lot richer than that. Yeah. It's not going to be like a korma because you're not using coconuts that. or anything. So um, I think it's, it's a very strong... Uh, uh, flavor of the whole spices that go into it. So you would use a bay leaf, you would use cinnamon, you would use, um, you know, the dried uh, black cardamom, the big black cardamoms, the green cardamoms, cloves, black pepper. This isn't too so different very, to a stew, actually, is it? Uh, it's cooked very differently. So a stew would have a lighter, uh, you know, gravy in it. Yeah. This is very thick. So it like coats the mutton. Yeah. yeah. And how long are you normally cooking it for? About 45 minutes to an hour. Okay. And that's when you're cooking it on fire. Yeah. But if you were to do it the traditional way, maybe about two hours. Oh, two, okay. Two, so two and a half hours. So presumably then the meat's getting really, really tender. Tender. Yeah. It's, it literally falls off the bone. Ah, stop it. Sounds <laughs> delicious. And you, you're serving this with bread? You could serve it with bread. Uh, typically, we would serve it with naan or the rumali roti, if you're familiar with that. Uh, no. Okay, so a rumal a rumal is basically a handkerchief, right? And so the roti is really like translucent. Oh, I've had one of these. I've through, had this. Right? Oh, nice. It's a big, soft, yeah, uh, roti bread. So they they flip it like they would uh, pizza. Ah, uh, interesting. Base. Yeah, but it's really, really uh, thin. So what you seem to be telling me with this dish is, even if you have all the right ingredients, sometimes it's just a question of time. Time. Could this be possibly be an analogy for startups? Most definitely, yes. <laughs> yeah. But um, with a startup, I think uh, in my own experience, uh, I don't think time should be a factor that, you know, should really stress out a founder. Uh, some things work fast, some things don't work fast, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to work out. So I would say persistence is something that you need to have when you're a founder. And stick with it, whether it's going to happen soon, whether it's going to happen later, it will happen. And you're going to be a part of this success story. For any listeners that, are, that have got their next promising food. ag tech, food tech, th- they should get in touch? Absolutely. So if there's anyone who has any interesting ideas, then I'm happy to you know, talk about and see what Singapore and the region has to offer them.
that was Vandana. Uh, I hope you've been inspired to start your own business, start your own food tech venture uh, by listening to her. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Vandana. So as I mentioned, Vandana will be attending the Thought for Food Summit, uh, which is happening later this year in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, If you haven't heard of Thought for Food, they're an organisation I highly recommend you check out. Uh, They work with a community of over 20,000 next generation leaders from over 175 countries, a truly global community that's led by a small core team uh, of, of 14 regional coordinators and 400 ambassadors around the world. They're a very friendly team. I know many of them personally. Uh, and so I highly recommend if you're even remotely interested in the organization, reach out. There'll be someone who'll be very enthusiastic uh, to hear from you, I'm sure. Uh, last October, they launched the TFF Digital Labs, which is a mobile optimized startup acceleration and collaboration platform, which basically means if you're interested in starting a food tech venture, uh, you don't necessarily have to do so uh, in person. You don't have to invest a huge amount of money. Uh, You can log on to their system uh, and learn uh, about the startup ecosystem, get expert mentoring, peer-to-peer support. Highly recommend logging on and trying that out. Uh, TFF is also working with the finalists and boost startup teams that were selected in last year's TFF Challenge, uh, and they're supporting them in their annual innovation prize competition. Uh, They have money, they have mentorship. Basically, if you're doing any kind of project which is even remotely related to the future of food, TFF probably has some way of helping you. And if you're interested in meeting other like-minded people, there's no better place in the world than the TFF Summit, which is their flagship global event with keynote speakers, uh, networking, pitches, parties. Uh, It's a a fascinating event. I've never attended, uh, but I will be attending uh, this October. I'm going to be emceeing one of the stages, uh, and I absolutely can't wait. I've seen some of their plans, and this is a summit like no other. This is not some kind of boring conference. There's going to be uh, dances and parties and comedy and uh, all sorts of funny stuff. So if you're interested, then uh, check them out. To learn more about them, you can go to uh, their social media. I think it's Thought for Food Org. Um, you can find their website, uh, but I highly recommend you check them out. So uh, that's it from me this month. There will be another episode next month. If you have any feedback on the podcast, then do please feel free to email us at podcast at pona.app. That's podcast at pona.app. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do through my Instagram. That's ollihornpicks, O-L-L-I-E-H-O-R-N, picks, P-I-C-S. And until next month, stay safe.